On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with high-conflict divorce coach and consultant Tina Swithin about her own experience with post-separation abuse, self-representation, stalking, and family court. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. Today on our show, we have Tina Swithin, and you are going to get a lot of great information from this episode. You will also get a lot of her story in this episode and what she had to deal with in her relationship and the post-separation abuse as well. And it's a pretty crazy story. So uh, you're going to learn a lot from her. But before we get to that, if you've not been to our website recently and you want to be on our survivor story episodes, episode show, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form, press that button, fill out the form, and we will go from there. Another thing on our website, if you need support, is to click on the community support button at NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's at the top of the page, and that's for our very own safe social network. Our community members are there posting on our forums. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday and Saturday night. We have prompt workbooks to help you dig deeper into episodes and get more clarity in your relationships and life. We have events you can create. We have meditations and closure ceremonies. Our community members are all amazing and they are here to support you. So come to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, press the community support button and we will see you there. Another way to get support is to go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. And you can also connect with your local resources and find ways to heal and move forward. So if you go to DomesticShelters.org, you can access this free resource today. And I think that is it for today make it short and sweet. So uh, a big thank you to Tina Swithin for being uh, part of our show and sharing all of her knowledge. You're all going to learn a lot today. So a big thank you to her. And now, without further ado, here is my episode with Tina Swithin. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, I have Tina Swithin. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Happy to be here. Well, thank you for being here. And for those that do not know you, you are a divorce coach and a consultant while acting as your own attorney in a high-conflict custody battle that turned into a worst case scenario for your family. It's everyone's worst nightmare. And you had to go through a two day trial. You had over 40 court dates. You had two full child custody evaluations. During that time, you were your minor's counsel. 
you had over 12 police reports that were generated in a total of three child welfare reports that determined your ex-husband was a moderate risk, yet the courts did nothing to protect them. You have founded the Family Court Awareness Month. You are the author of Divorcing a Narcissist. It's a series. And you're the founder of a high-conflict divorce coaching certification program. And you can be found, and everything of yours can be found, at onemomsbattle.com. All of this will be in the show notes, everyone. And I just want to thank you for, for being here. I know you're going to spread a wealth of knowledge and save a lot of people's lives, time, energy, everything. So thank you for being here. And, you know, I guess, I guess we'll start off uh, at the, the beginning here, uh, which is, for me, post-separation abuse. Okay. And when it comes to post-separation abuse and what you had to deal with, can you kind of describe for people uh, what it what it was and how you had to uh, overcome it or deal with it in the sense of what were the the steps that you took to combat it? Sure, we learn so much about domestic violence, but the reality is, you know, we're really missing um, the mark when we're not educating people on what happens when you leave, when there are children involved. Because when you leave a domestic violence situation and there are no children involved, you can just cut ties and and go on and do your healing work and, and go forward. But when there are children involved, you are still tied to that person legally. And so for me, I ended up in the women's shelter in 2009 some of the most humbling days of my life, darkest days of my life. And, you know, I I was told, you know, you're doing the right thing. You're being brave. This is the right choice for you and your kids. And what they didn't tell me is that day that we filed for divorce, you know, that you get a case number, but you will also get your own personal terrorist. And so, What we know about domestic violence, it's about power and control. And so that doesn't mysteriously vanish when the relationship ends. It transfers to a new form of abuse that we we don't hear a lot about. Um, But I know for me and so many of the others that I talked to, the post-separation abuse was worse than the abuse I suffered during my marriage. So in that, with the post-separation abuse, you're out of it and, you know, you have, I guess you go to the police sometimes on on these things or you go to the court and do, I guess for you, did they turn a blind eye or did they have a deaf ear in these situations? And if so, like, what were you able to do in these cases to make yourself, I guess, sane? Uh, or, or not go crazy? You know, I, I found law enforcement is has no training in these issues. And, you know, they push it off on the court. And then the, when, when you go into the court and the court's saying, well, if all of these things were happening, why didn't you call the police? And you're thinking, I did call the police, but the police didn't want to get involved. They chalk it up to a domestic issue, civil issue. And so, you know, there's this gap in between the two and this disconnect. 
the family court system, what I found was the mentality is very much, you know, even if it's not spoken, the mentality is you chose to marry this person or to have children with this person, and it's not our job to fix. My judge actually said that to me. He said, you know, you not only had one child with this person, you had two. You can't come into my courtroom and expect me to solve all of your problems. And I'll tell you, that's a, a big gut punch. And I left the courtroom and, and went and, you know, licked my wounds and, and had to dust myself off. And I will tell you, in hindsight, looking back, I'm actually grateful that he verbalized what his thought process was on it because it allowed me to adjust and, you know, manage my expectations appropriately on what the system could do for me or was willing to do for me. It was a big wake-up call. And... You had to become your own lawyer. So there's a lot of people out there that, you know, save up as much money to get the retainer for the lawyer. Maybe they get the lawyer, they run out of money, and then all of a sudden they're going to be representing themselves. So what was the process for you? Did you even entertain that or were you just like, I'm going to do this? And what were the steps that you took to prepare yourself as your own lawyer? It was definitely not a personal choice. Um, I lived what I now call it was my fake fancy life <laughs> where everything was a facade. You know, he kept me isolated from the finances. I had a spending amount. I had credit cards. We lived a very, what I now know was a fake fancy life, big house, lots of cars. It was all tied into his ego, his image, but he was just borrowing from one bank to pay another loan. And so when that all blew up, I discovered we were over a million dollars in debt. I still to this day can't even grasp that number, <laughs> that that was what our life was. And so when I started in the court system, it definitely wasn't by choice that I acted as my own attorney. Um, I was... I didn't have a choice. When I left the women's shelter, I had less than $200. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, couldn't you have borrowed from retirement or kids' college funds? I had none of that. We had been entrepreneurs. In a period of six months, I lost my business, my home, my marriage, everything exploded um, because all of his schemes caught up to him. And so I walked into the court completely on my own and um, looked like a deer in headlights for the first year. Um, I am that I am conflict avoidant by nature. So if you're angry at me, I will be up in the middle of the night worrying about it. And so to be thrust into this type of atmosphere where, you know, conflict, the, the players in the court system are so desensitized to these things these are just business transactions to them. If there's, and, but these were my kids. These were my little girls, and they were little. They were both in preschool at the time. And so I was put into this situation that I had never stepped foot in a court in my life, um, completely out of my element. And I 
you know, for the first couple of years, I made some mistakes, you know, not choosing my battles wisely. Um, back then, there was really nothing out there on narcissism. So when I would get a four paragraph long email, just berating me and, you know, telling me what a horrible person I was, I would write six paragraphs back trying to explain to him, that's not who I am. You know, I don't understand who you're even writing about here. And, and so not choosing my battles wisely and, you know, filling the court docket with way too many papers because I didn't know what I was doing. It was, um, I would say about the two year mark where I started realizing that these were business transactions to the court and that I was just a case number. And so I started sitting in the courtroom and watching proceedings on the days when it wasn't my case, when I wasn't emotionally or, or you know, triggered by it, you know, my own children, their lives being decided upon within five minutes. It takes long, I always say it takes longer to go adopt a puppy at the animal shelter than it does for these judges to decide something that could be your child's life. And um, so I started just sitting anytime I had a three hour block of time, that's where you would find me, was sitting in the courtroom, watching other cases, watching how attorneys presented things, um, you know, writing down case law that I felt applied to my case. I sometimes looked like a stalker because if there was a case that represented mine, I would chase that mom out of the courtroom and say, hey, <laughs> we need to talk. You know, we have a lot in common. And I started forming a little group of moms that way. I would also pay attention to cases. And if there was one that, that truly um, felt like mine, you know, another high conflict case, I would go out to the court computer, I would look up that case, I would go through everything that had ever been filed since day one, I would learn the language of the attorneys and the court, and try to, you know, try to copy what they were doing. And, and over time, I learned, you know, that two year mark was a big shift for me, because I went from being driven by emotions to understanding the importance of strategy. And I still had emotion. You know, I, I remember so many court dates, even when I was there and I had my strategy cap on. When, when my kids were put in harm's way, I would go crawl into the back of my car afterwards and tuck into fetal position and cry my eyes out. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a journey I don't wish on anyone. And if someone has never experienced it, you have a hard time understanding. You're, you're looking at them going, well, there has to be more to the story. You know, the courts are there to protect kids. They are not. That is not. Kids are divided like property. So I'm going to go a little off script here for a second and ask you, uh, you know, you're starting off here in a shelter and you have to go to court. Your kid's have to go to preschool. They also have to be taken care of. You have to figure out how to make money. How did you cope and do all of these things? Because everyone listening right now who's in these situations are having a real-time trouble with their head just being above water. 
And so if you have any advice for them when it comes to this, where you feel like you're drowning and there's no out, everything, there's just everything, there's just so much to do and you still have to eat, you know? So how did you, I guess, emotionally uh, get through that and what kind of support did you have? Well, the hard part was my family's 2000 miles away. So I was really here on my own. I live in San Luis Obispo, California, um, really didn't have a local support system. And, you know, I, there were times where I was having to drive to local churches to get groceries, you know, from their food pantry. And, you know, weeks before that, I had been driving a Mercedes. And so, and I, I remember the day I walked into car dealerships because I know a lot of business owners with my wedding ring in hand, begging people because my car got repossessed in the middle of all of this and, and begging people to trade me a used car. I don't care what it is. As long as it turns on, I'll give you my wedding ring. And it, that, you know, when I look back at that, that place of desperation, I was in survival mode. And, you know, when you're in that time period, you know, you hear a squeak in your brakes or in your car. And I just remember that sinking feeling like I cannot handle another hit right now. It would literally, you know, we're barely living paycheck to paycheck and that would completely destroy me. Um, so looking back, it was one day at a time and, and there were some really dark days, but for me, it was allowing myself to have pity parties, but I would say, you know, to myself, self, you have the, you know, you have every right to be angry and to be, you know, completely destroyed right now, but tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to try again because I've got these two little girls that are absolutely dependent on me to do that. And so, you know, you don't really have a choice when, you know, and I, I secured a part-time job, which you know, I'm still friends with my, my former boss and they gave me, you know, a foot in the door to prove myself and allowed me to work from home. And it was part time, but, you know, it's that rebuilding. There were, I, I remember back in probably 2010, my daughters and I had been sitting on the table on the floor eating dinner every night on little Ikea bins that we like storage bins. And that was our kitchen table. And I still remember the day I had saved up enough money to get a table at Target for like $99. And it was such a huge deal to me. Um, you know, I, I will never forget those days. And when I do the work I'm doing, helping other parents and advocating you know, I, I will never forget what, what that felt like to be in survival mode. So just to remind everyone that at your website, you do have courses uh, for situations like these for people to learn when it comes to what to do in court and everything along those lines. And you can find that at onemomsbattle.com. So in your process of being in court, you, I guess, eventually had to deal with did you have to deal with harassment and stalking and, and legal abuse? So explain to us what happened there within your story and how you went to go maybe uh, fight it, if that, if, or if there is fighting that goes along with this, or, or is it more of, you know, play turtle? Well, 
You know, it's it's choosing your battles wisely. It's, you know, yes, I, I had a lot of stalking that took place, but none of it that rose to the level of concern for police officers. They would take the reports, they would create a log and say, yeah, you know, he's concerning, he's worrisome. And it would be little things. Like I remember waking up one morning and finding pictures lining the the stairs to my apartment and him sitting at the bottom of the stairs and just staring at me. And that PTSD takes over and I just remember trembling. And then when you call the police, they're like, well, he says he returned all the pictures that the court ordered him to give back. And I'm like, yeah, but you have, you know, he, he spent an hour lining them all up on the stairs. Or I remember going outside one morning and finding our wedding videos on my porch. And the police were like, well, you know, he, he was returning your wedding videos. And, but it, it's so much more than that. It's that, it, you know, insidious, covert, stalking type behavior that doesn't rise to the level of a restraining order. And it, it's not, he's, he was too smart to threaten my life. But he would, you know, constantly, again, it's like having your own terrorist and it wears on you. You know, we need training. Um, and, and that's not only an issue with the police, that's family court. One of the things that has been most shocking to me in my research is to know that, you know, most family courts, most, most states have zero requirements for domestic violence training. And we just watched that play out in the police video out of, um, I believe, Utah, where the Gabby Petito case, you know, I watched the cycle of domestic violence play out in that video. But to the casual observer or a police officer who's not trained in that very covert abuse you know, it, it's not just a black eye. I, I, it even took me a long time to say that I'm a victim of domestic violence because he had never hit me, you know, but blocking doorways, you know, grabbing your wrist to let you know that he's in control, that's domestic violence. So much of this is all domestic violence, but we just don't have the training. And, you know, if, if there is one thing that positive that comes out of that Gabby Petito video is that I, I hope and pray that is used as a training tool for anyone in a position of power. And with your specific case, and I guess maybe uh, for everyone else, if you had to do that again, when it came to things that were returned, would you put it in, would you ask the court maybe to say, have him return all of that stuff to the police station and I will pick it up from the police station. So there would be really these uh, black and white situations that uh, he's to, is that a, is that a possibility or, or am well, I, am I living in a fantasy land where things run? <laughs> Little bit, you know, what <laughs> I found, especially in the first few years, I call it the grace period of family court where the judge allows for really poor behavior for about two years. Once they get to that two year mark, then they start leaning in and going, why are these people still here? And, and who's the problem? Or are they both the problem? But, you know, the, the, those first two years of my case, the court was 
annoyed with both of us. And so for me to ask, you know, I, he had an attorney. I did not. I just remember every time I would open my voice to speak, it was almost like I was silenced and cut off. And I, I remember vividly one day in court in the beginning, the first year, and the judge in the before the court, all the calendar starts, he'll go through each litigant and say, how long is your case going to take today? So they can estimate where to put you. And I remember saying, Your Honor, um, it's probably going to be 45 minutes. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, you have five. And I just, you know, so that's the thing you're up against where you don't have time to submit things like that. And, you know, you are barely able to get a sentence or two in. And and the court said to me so many times, I'm not going to micromanage this guy or this case. And so that in my opinion, would have fallen into that category for the judge. So when it comes to legal abuse that you were dealing with, I guess, what were some examples that happened and how did you combat that, especially as your own lawyer? Right. You know, for me, the, the legal abuse for me and for a lot of victims, it is the the perpetrator continuously filing motions and using the court to exhaust the other party. Um, But for me, it fell more into the category of disregarding court orders, um, falsifying documents. There were so many times I would read his declarations and think, I don't even know who he's talking about. This is not me. And when you are somebody who cares about the truth and, um, you know, you're your credibility, I mean, that is gutting in itself. And so he used the court um, asking for changes in custody, asking uh, for full custody of my kids. He would have much rather paid a nanny to or a child care provider to raise the kids. Um, and, and so utilizing the court as a foundation, it becomes their stage to further abuse the victim. And, and most of these people, they thrive, you know, on that stage of family court where, again, you know, I'm like a deer in headlights, um, you know, for the first first juncture of that. So you said filing motions, which you, I guess you didn't have to, to deal with. Uh, can you explain what a filing motion is and how that is abused? So a lot of um, narcissists or toxic individuals will file motions and put a court date on the calendar asking for a change in custody, asking to pay less child support, um, you know, all types of things. And and a lot of it is very frivolous and they're just using the court and the children as pawns. And when it came to your case, when did you, or, or I don't even know if this happened, when did you go on the offensive, if that is even a thing, where you're like, okay, I think I've understood everything here, I've gained all of my knowledge, and now the I think the ball is in my court. And when you, you think the ball is in your court, what are you able to do? Um, it was getting to that place of strategy. For me, it was radical acceptance that this is not the venue to get justice. There's nothing fair in family court. And, you know, they're, they don't know either of us. So me expecting them to know who I am 
and that I'm the good parent is, you know, that it doesn't work that way. They don't know either party. For all they know, I am a horrible person and I'm the problem. And so really getting to the place of, you know, knowing that I had to paint a picture of who I am and prove myself to the court, but also paint a picture of who he was and, and documenting all of the issues. And unfortunately, you know, so many people rush the court and they want a psyche valve to prove the other person is a narcissist or a sociopath or whatever it is. And the reality that I discovered is it doesn't matter because there's zero research out there to show how a narcissist affects a child. And so for me, the strategy was show, you know, documenting. That's one thing I pride myself on. My documentation was off the charts and I documented everything Um, because you never know what they're going to pay attention to or where you're going to have to, you know, defend yourself because they're so, I mean, I, there was one point where I, I don't know exactly how he worded it, but he was trying to basically tell the court I was running a prostitution ring. <laughs> Anybody who knows me, that is hilarious. Um, you know, I'm, it's just insane what they will throw out. But the court doesn't know if I really am running a prostitution ring. And so you really have to, to document all those things, show patterns of behavior, not that he's a jerk or, you know, whatever, but how it's affecting the kids because they really don't care who he is as a person or who he was during your marriage. It's all in the here and now, but it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. So really, you know, for me, it was beginning to shift into that strategy mindset um, and managing my expectations appropriately about what the court could and couldn't do or would and wouldn't do. And, and then, you know, so I had a custody evaluation in 2009, and this is a good example of your question. When we first started the battle, I didn't have documentation. I didn't have, um, I was in such a place of trauma that I, strategy wasn't even in my vocabulary. And so I didn't present well in that evaluation in terms of really showing who he was and how my kids were being affected. I didn't have the proof. The second evaluation that I went through, which was about four years into our battle, was really what ended up protecting my kids um, because I was able to show the patterns of behavior, you know, where my concerns were. And and really, you know, they they are so focused on two parents are better than one, no matter what, to the detriment of the child. And so, you know, incorporating that into your strategy that, yes, I understand the important role he plays in their lives. And and I, I agree that's important. However, I have concerns about their safety while they're in his care. And so I want to facilitate a relationship but I want to ensure that there are safeguards in place to protect them. So, you know, that was a huge shift for me. Well, and I had a great therapist, thankfully, um, who really understood what I was going through. And that's hard to find. I, I look back and um, didn't realize what a blessing that was to have somebody that truly understood narcissistic abuse. And when it came to 
dealing with your ex and, and strategy, did you eventually come to the conclusion, well, I can't tell the court what's, what he is. And I do my best to write down the abusive things that have happened. But within the days of court, are you just letting your partner or your ex-partner dig their own hole by showing who they are? Because maybe for the most part, yes, they might be charming, but eventually maybe in this process, that mask might slip a little and that gets seen. Is that something that you hope for? Absolutely. And the... The interesting part with mine and so many of these people is that there's usually a component of addiction. And I often say that I don't think it was just his narcissism that buried him in all of this. I believe that it was the extreme alcohol addiction because it kept him from functioning at 100%. You know, the mask was he was either craving a drink or hungover or um, or drunk, you know, it was one of those three phases. And when they're in that mode, um, you know, the mask doesn't stay on as tight. And it would be the times, there were so many times in court where I would watch him and, and just be cringing because I can read the judge's body language and know that the judge is super annoyed with him. And that fixer in me is looking at him going, stop, you're, you're making him mad. But then I check myself and go, no, let him, <laughs> let him keep digging himself. Because if left to their own, they are their own worst enemy. So after court is over, you then have to co-parent, parallel parent, or as I have here in my notes, counter-parent. Counter-parent. So can yeah. you explain what counter-parenting is, and then we'll, I guess, go into, I guess, the ins and outs of some problems that you'll uh, people might face, such as alienation accusations, uh, neglectful parenting, uh, et cetera, of like how do you as a, a parent uh, then deal with the aftermath of what your child has to deal with if they are in the uh, custody of your uh, ex-partner and then they come back to your home. Right. Um, you know, with, so the court wants to see co-parenting, but we all know that reality is these people cannot co-parent. So, but, you know, when I see people using the gray rock method, which is the go-to method for communicating with this type of person, um, it really hurts them in court because again, the court doesn't know either party and what Grey Rock does is it, may, it makes us present as cold or jaded or bitter or jealous or whatever it is. And so what I have found over the years is that the court expects us to co-parent, so we have to present that way. We have to present as the best co-parent the court has ever seen. But mentally, we are parallel parenting, meaning I don't have a lot of control on what happens on that person's time. And so mentally, that is the, the stance we take. But what the narcissist does is counter-parenting. And that is undermining every single thing the healthy parent is doing. Their decisions, um, you know, withholding medical consent is a big one. Um, and again, most people think, well, they wouldn't hurt the kids. Yes, they do hurt the kids. The kids are just pawns in this to them. And so 
they will cause issues medically, therapeutically, and undermine everything that you are trying to do. And that's where, again, your documentation comes into play. And it, it takes time, though. There's nothing quick about this process and showing that they are trying to counter or counter parenting. So uh, how do you deal with alienation uh, accusations? And is there anything you can uh, do about that? So the, the go-to accusation of the narcissist in family court is they're, you're alienating. And, and the reality of that, if we dig deep, it's that they never had a bond with the child in the first place because they're not capable of that or their behavior was so abusive that the child wants nothing to do with them. But from a place of strategy, if you're taking all emotions out of it and we're thinking the way a cutthroat attorney would think, it's a brilliant way for, a, for counsel to flip the tables on their client's bad behavior and point the finger in the spotlight on the healthy parent. And it's one of the worst things to happen in the family court system, in my opinion. Um, and, and the second somebody plants that seed and uses that word, it's really hard to dig that up. It, you know, it, it just grows. And then you're almost having to defend yourself. And meanwhile, your child has a legitimate reason why they don't want to get in this person's car. This person is scary and mean and um, my kids would describe it at an early age as when there are people around, dad's really nice. But when we get in the car or we go home, he is not very nice. And they could articulate that from being really, really little. And that's the reality is, you know, it, it, why does it surprise anybody that a child doesn't want to have a bond or a relationship with this toxic, mean person? So how did you explain to your children that I have to send you to this awful person that you do not want to, you don't want to be in their presence at all? And how do you explain that to them when you want to keep them safe, but you're not allowed to? And was there any backlash from your children, I guess, against you as far as trusting you? And are there ways for parents to deal with that? Because it's such a, a huge thing where you want to do everything and, and you can't protect them. You're not allowed to protect them by law. And it obviously is going to cause your children aren't old enough to understand what's happening. So are there ways to to deal with that or, or, or you know, or do you put them into therapy, which a lot of people cannot afford? Right. Um, what are the ways to deal with that? You know, when I look in the rearview mirror of this battle, that is the most painful part of all of it because nature intended for me to protect my kids. And your hands, the second you walk into that court, courtroom, it's almost like they tie your hands behind your back and you're not allowed to do what nature intended for you to do. And that is, there is some deep pain that is still there for me, even 10 years later, 12 years later. Um, for my kids, you know, it was 
first of all, it was teaching them behind the scenes, nothing ever to do with their dad, never pointing the finger, but teaching them in general what boundaries are, what red flags are in people, what your instincts are, that you always listen to your inner voice and you can get to a quiet place and listen. And so all of those things, never pointing fingers, but empowering them with that knowledge. But then when it came time to put them in the car with this person, and I was dealing with a person who was so unstable that there were times before I put my kids in the car, I studied or took a picture of every feature on their face because I didn't know if I would ever see them again. I truly believed he would drive all of them off a cliff just to hurt me. And I maintain that to this day. Um, so putting my kids in a car with somebody who I know is dangerous and capable of the ultimate. Um, for me, it was telling my daughters, mom and dad are working with a team of people to decide the rules and what's best for our family. And there are going to be times where mom may not agree with them or dad may not agree with them or you may not, but I, mom has to follow the rules that are created for our family. And that can be adjusted depending on age appropriate, but it's a way to talk to them and, and you know, express that without using terms like judges or attorneys or, you know, it's a way to say, hey, and, and I used to tell my kids, you know, these are adult issues and mom is doing my very best to work through them. And when you're with mom, your job is to be a kid as much as you can, you know, and let mom worry about those adult issues. And when it comes to, you know, after the fact, abusive parenting, neglectful parenting, you know, sometimes there could be sexual abuse going on or all these other things. And you have no proof, you know, so are you able to, alert anyone what i guess what are the the things you're you're allowed to do supposed to do is being overly emotional going to uh work against you in, in these situations when you're you know ranting and raving hey uh, is that going to look bad on you and if so what what is what is the thing to do in these situations or is it just like document so one thing to remember is that most Judges and other family court professionals are highly narcissistic themselves. So when we present with emotions, we are going to look unstable, you know, unregulated, all of the things that the narcissist is accusing us of. So for me, that was keeping it in the bathroom of the courthouse. If I cried, I always had makeup. I could redo it and go back in and, and you know, do that superhero pose in the bathroom mirror and, and go back in and present, you know, and that's easier said than done. There were times where I didn't do a great job at that. Um, you know, in my case, um, we had a huge, we ended up with a huge criminal aspect to my case. Um, there was my, my ex-husband's brother who I repeatedly warned the court that I did not want my children around. And he frequented in Thailand. He was said some horribly inappropriate things. There were concerns that I have about him being around young girls. And the court refused to listen to me. They did to some degree, 
but um, about five years ago, not the way anyone ever wants to be validated, but he was arrested and we just finished his criminal trial and he was sentenced to almost 300 years in prison. Um, so I had significant concerns in that category. And when you know there are any, whatever type of abuse you're dealing with, when you first of all have that suspicion and you know you are right, but your hands again are tied because it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. And that's where, unfortunately, I feel like a broken wheel sometimes, the document, 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 until somebody listens. And you never know who that's going to be. You never, you know, and I don't believe there's anything final in family court. There, most people do start at 50-50 custody. Obviously, that is horrible for children if you have a narcissistic parent. And so I have always refused to accept that any of this is the final destination, you know, and, and so, okay, great, Your Honor, this is where we are right now. I'll keep coming back until my children are safe because I need to go to bed at night knowing that I've done everything in my power to protect them. And, you know, my with my story, my kids are safe now and you know, we have no contact. His rights are terminated. And that's, everybody told me that could never happen and it would never happen and that it's impossible to do in California. And I, through this entire process, refused to listen to anybody who tried to tell me, you know, the negatives. It's like, okay, I heard you. <laughs> and I know that that is a potential but I'm going to just put my blinders on and keep going forward. So when it comes to family court, you created family court awareness month. What are the biggest things that you feel uh, need to be fixed within the family court system? There are, you know, we have research, we have empirical data um, that is available, but that is not being incorporated into the family court decision-making process. The family court needs training at a minimum on domestic violence, but they need trauma-informed training. They need to incorporate um, the ACE study into the decisions that they're making. And they need, you know, there needs to be oversight and regulation. There's no recourse. I can't go back and sue anyone for affecting my kids even though it's warranted and and for failing my kids. But, you know, the system is protected. If that were to ever change, which I doubt it'll happen in my lifetime, you would see people leaning in and paying more attention and not treating kids like property. Yeah. One of the earliest Survivor Story shows or podcasts that I did was with this person named Miriam. And Miriam was framed perfectly. I mean, unbeknownst to her, she was just, uh, she had no idea these things were going on in, in the background until one day Miriam ended up in jail. And she ended up in jail for taking her ex's phone outside of their apartment. It was crazy. And she ended up having to also wear an ankle uh, bracelet. She had to do... Um, uh, she wasn't even an alcoholic and she had to do she had to do like blow tests throughout the day and if it wasn't for 
two things. One, that she had money and was able to kind of be around the court system and stay within it, which was a big thing. But if I remember correctly, there was a court clerk who was reading the case who'd been through this kind of stuff and, and realized and looked at it and said, this is too perfect. It was just too perfect for them. And they could see it. They, like they read it. They're like, something's not right here. And that court clerk started, Hey, we should take a look into this a little bit more and alerted someone about it. And if it wasn't for that person, things wouldn't have started going and things wouldn't have been able to be unwound the way they, they were. But it took someone with the knowledge to see, who's been through it to see between the lines. You know, I always used to say, or I always say like, you know, an eye roll is an eye roll, but, or, or look is a look, but like, I know what that look means. You don't know what that look means. That, that's what this, you know, and that those are the little nuances that, that people are, are missing. And these are the things that family court doesn't, there are no nuances for family court, but there needs to be. Right. Right. And, and even, you know, watching the, I don't know if you saw the documentary on uh, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. I've not watched only, it. You haven't. Yeah. It's wow. It's incredibly powerful and, and is a really good portrayal of the reality of family court. But in, and I do believe some of it had to do with, she had a tremendous amount of money to fight the battle, but the reason her, her judge protected her daughter was because he was married to a domestic violence advocate. And so he was very informed on domestic violence and, and trauma. And so he was able to see through this narcissistic show or sociopath, whatever he is, you know, and, and see right through what he was doing. And, and that's the difference in a lot of these cases. Um, my commissioner, he wasn't a judge, but he was a commissioner, is the one who ended up protecting my kids in the end um, and actually called my ex-husband a sociopath twice on our final court date. Um, but that tells me that judge knew more than most on the topic. And, and most of them just, you know, don't understand this at all and they don't have the training or, and there's the ones where they just don't care and, and no amount of training is going to help, but there needs to be oversight and regulation because, you know, if you do look at where media has gone in and said, okay, you know, in this one state, there have been 180 um, complaints filed against judges and zero of them were founded. That's kind of a red flag <laughs> because... I hear the horror stories and, and probably most of them should have been founded. So on your website, you have a bunch of different offerings. You have a high conflict divorce coach, uh, coach certification program. A lot of people who've been through this process after want to uh, be coaches, uh, want to use their experience to help other people. So going through your program uh, would be beneficial for a lot of people. And the other offerings that you have there, uh, what are they and how do they specifically help uh, individuals that will, will be listening today? We have so many things on the One Mom's Battle website. In addition to the online courses, we have state chapters. So if you're in Illinois 
and you want to learn your local system, which I highly recommend, that is a huge piece of being successful and strategic. You know, we have chapters all over the world of One Mom's Battle, and so you can join your state chapters. We do have a database of attorneys who have been recommended to us, also therapists who understand these dynamics. Um, there are just, we, we send educational packets out to judges um, anonymously. So somebody can go onto our website and purchase a package for $50. And it's a really nice folder, has the post-separation abuse wheel on it. And it has the data, the research that these judges need to make child safe decisions. And so we're, we send, we've been doing that for years. And so it doesn't go with your name on it. It goes from our organization. And I even follow up and try to communicate with the judges on it. So we have so many different things. And before we end off our show, is there anything that we missed that you want to tell everyone? I do a YouTube called Coffee with Tina every Friday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific time. You can find it on the One Mom's Battle YouTube channel. And I ask questions because I know, or answer questions because I know that not everyone can afford a divorce coach or can afford my services. And so, you know, I, I always put myself right back in that place of having $178 to my name and and getting food from pantries. And I, I understand. And so that's part of my heart project is every Friday morning, you can join me there for coffee. And we will have a link in our show notes to the YouTube as well as one, one mom's battle.com and everything that Tina is offering. And uh, really from the bottom of my heart, Tina, thank you for being here with me and everyone today. I know you're going to help a ton of people just by, by being here. So from the bottom of my heart, a big thank you. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely grateful. And from Tina and I, we hope you have a good night.